It's good to uh, be here with you all. Good to welcome our friends from uh, Madison. And also want to welcome uh, a number of people who were uh, in the two-year program that I helped to guide called the Path of Engagement. A number of people were having a reunion um, after, um, after this morning class for the whole day. You know, and then some people will continue with the uh, retreat that I'm helping to teach with Joanna Macy and Lawrence Ellis, which will begin this evening. Um, there may be a spot or two, I don't know. So if anyone doesn't have plans for the next week. <laughs> <laughs> or wants to change your plans. So I want to continue the theme that I started last time which was uh, inspired by the fact that I uh, was helping to teach the two-month retreat uh, for the month of March and worked with uh, a number of people. There were about 25 people who were doing two months of meditation and about 65 people who did February and March. And I was really privileged to be with the retreat during March. And I was inspired by that time and shared some of my uh, reflections on my own experience, what I saw, something about the uh, ways that practice gets deepened. And I was interested in bringing out from that retreat a number of themes that could help us with our own sense of deepening practice, and particularly in this case, deepening our formal practice, deepening our meditation on the cushion. How do we do that? And I named a number of themes, which I want to continue today, but today I want to broaden that sense of deepening practice and bring in, as it were, two other domains of our practice. And it's a way that I often think about the entirety of our practice. I think of it often as happening in three domains. One is the domain of our individual work, especially that that we might do in formal practice, uh, our own individual work with ourselves. The second uh, domain is that of our everyday lives and our sense of what does practice mean for me in the context of my work, my relationships, the flow of my uh, daily life, how do I connect that with my formal practice? How do I keep the qualities such as mindfulness or compassion or generosity or uh, concentration, stability, uh, courage, wisdom, how do I keep those developing in the context of everyday life, in the context of relationship, work, friends, community, and so forth? It's a big part of our lives. If our, li if our practice has uh, energy and creativity, it's probably <coughs> because we have found ways to make it come alive in that daily life context. So that's a second domain. A third domain is starts to move out from daily life practice and we could say it's the domain of service or relating to the larger society. How do I relate to the larger society? How do I 
engage in my own form of helping, of serving, of, as is said in Judaism, of doing the act of tikkun olam, of repairing the world. It's something that is taken to be uh, part of one's spiritual life. And so I, I often think of these three domains as a helpful way to uh, frame our practice and frame our practice in a, in a way that I think has wholeness, that doesn't leave out parts of our lives. That, and this is not to say that we need to be doing all three all the time. It doesn't work, <laughs> right? And I very much appreciate the fact that there are cycles. There are cycles when we're more inward. There are more cycles when maybe we're more outward. There are more cycles when we have to, as it were, get our daily life act together. (laughs) There are cycles in which something very compelling calls us. It could be an illness in the family or some kind of uh, challenge, and we have to attend to that. It could be people going back to school. So it's not like we, we do all three all the time, but I think it's helpful to think of these three domains of our practice and ask where am I called, or where is my, where is my edge? Uh, and there's um, inspiration for me in that model that, I, that I've received from learning more about the Vietnamese Buddhist tradition, uh, and particularly from um, teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh, but also uh, a good friend named uh, Thich Minh Duc. Who, uh, who I've known for about 15 years, who has been a senior monk and I think, I believe, a Dharma heir of Thich Nhat Hanh, who's worked with the Vietnamese communities for many, many years. Born in Vietnam, been a monk since he was 10 or 12. He's in his 60s now. And very involved with the uh, Buddhist movement in Vietnam during the 60s and 70s as a young man. Uh, eventually was in prison and actually tortured and came to the U.S. around 1980. And uh, quite a beautiful man. And I've learned from him about what some of the emphases were uh, in the Buddhism as it's developed. And he actually actually wrote a a Ph.D. dissertation, which I helped guide, on um, a history of engaged Buddhism in Vietnam, dating back to the year 1000. (laughs) You know, which I hope gets published soon. He was going to actually co-publish a version of it with Thich Nhat Hanh. And so uh, I've learned from him a lot. And one thing I learned was that in, in Vietnam, starting in the 1940s, there was a very similar way that they held their practice, as I just outlined. And there was originally more the monastic model, which would have a lot of parallel with this emphasis on formal practice and really going to the depths of the traditional teachings. And that's always been a foundation. And as the, particularly the social and political crises developed, you know, at first it was colonialism and then it was war and and so forth, um, many people, including Thich Nhat Hanh, felt a need to bring the essence of spiritual practice out from the monasteries into the world. And so they had a phrase which they called uh, 
jian in Vietnamese, uh, which translates as Buddhism for everybody. <laughs> and which was uh, more or less saying, we should make this accessible to everyone, and everyone should be able to approach the depths that are possible in the sustained practice in monasteries. And that developed starting in the 1940s and was uh, quite, uh, quite a strong movement, controversial. A lot of the monks said and nuns said. <laughs> um, said, we have some questions about you. And Thich Nhat Hanh actually got into hot water and I believe was kicked out of a kicked out of a monastery or two. You know, he's now he's this august figure that everyone respects, but he, he was a young firebrand and got in trouble. And now he's very revered and someone should give him the Nobel Peace Prize one of these days. <laughs> so everyone know his work? People know Thich Nhat Hanh's work. He's one of the most beloved teachers uh, these days. And, but then in the 1950s, as the war intensified, there was a, a second, or we might say a uh, well, in my model, it would be the third phase started to open up, and it opened up in two ways. At first, it opened up into the need for service, to bring spiritual practice to meet the needs of refugees, to meet the needs to rebuild villages, to uh, build schools, to give medical care. And this was, was known as Nap uh, Te uh, in Vietnamese, uh, translated as uh, going into the world, and particularly with an emphasis on service. It really corresponds to that third domain I was mentioning. And then later, when, you know, when things were quite intense in Vietnam, and starting about 1963, there was another phase called Dan Tan, which translates as getting involved, which was more the explicit attempt to try to stop war and bring about peace. You know, they never engaged in partisan politics, but they did try to stop war. And this was, and, and to um, um, basically stop the killing and stop, stop the violence. And, and so for me, that, that's, uh, that's a powerful model. Again, for myself, I've sometimes been more focused on inward work, sometimes to the consternation of some of my friends who are more activist. And then sometimes more moving outwardly. You know, I think there are definitely cycles. But I like this model of building on a strong base of individual practice and bringing that out into the different parts of our, of our lives. And, and, and for simplicity's sake, naming these three places, our formal practice, our individual practice, our everyday life practice, and then our larger service and involvement with, with the world in some way to, to respond to the needs there. And it, it corresponds uh, very much in spirit to this uh, wonderful poem that many of you probably know by uh, Rilke called Widening Circles. And I want, as I did last time, to bring poetry uh, in to illustrate some of what we're exploring a, a number of times as I did last week. So this is Rilke talking about this sense of moving out into the world, having our hearts and our our wisdom, our compassion, moving outward. He says, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete the last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and I still don't know, am I a falcon, 
a storm, or a great song. I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and I still don't know, am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? And so last time, uh, I tried to identify ways that we deepen practice. And again, inspired by the month being with very dedicated uh, retreatants. And from that time, I I had a sense of, and just named, maybe four or five core areas that help us to deepen practice. And I want to name those briefly now and then go through them. I think they really give us a a sense uh, or some guidance on how we deepen practice in each of those three domains, which which is what I want to focus on. So I'll just mention these briefly. The first one was uh, developing a simplicity and focus and being in touch with the priorities of our lives. That that's a powerful way to deepen practice. So developing uh, a sense of simplicity and focus for our lives that puts us in touch with our priorities, number one. Number two, have good support structures. (laughs) Develop... uh, what we sent in psychological language we would call a container. Could be community, but all sorts of support structures. Very crucial for deepening practice. And then the third broad area is to is the series of practices that help us to develop uh, steadiness of mind, mindfulness, wisdom, open heart, and so forth. So the third area are finding ways to practice. And then the fourth area is to have a deepened sense of the whole path. This is more the wisdom aspect. How do we have a sense of what this journey is about, of what this path is about? So those are the four I want to, I want to explore and touch base some on our individual practice, which I mostly focused on last time, but also bring it out into the question of how do we deepen our practice in our daily lives? And I would say if we give attention to these four areas, we will deepen well. And we need our own deepening, and our friends need our deepening, (laughs) and the world needs our deepening. So... It's really important, you know, and we have what Mary Oliver called our wild, precious lives. How do we use them? So the first area has to do with this question of can I really have a focus and a simplicity to my life? You know, I think when we get some, in this society, we often get overly complicated, you know, and it can be really, really busy. I was experiencing some of that this morning, you know, because I was having to um, not only have a talk ready for this morning, but also um, pack for a week away, teaching a retreat, uh, have some talks ready for the retreat, as well as other things, 
tidy up all my loose ends so I can be away for a week. And this was after having been away already for a month right before that. So it wasn't exactly that I had everything in order. It gets complicated, you know, very easy. And then, then we had um, an accident on the bridge. Plus, my um, car was quite low on gasoline. <laughs> there it was. How did, you, know, the, you know, there it was. I, I was saying to myself, if I, if, if I sit in traffic on the bridge for one hour, I will contribute to a greater, a greater backup. <laughs> and so all this was happening at once. It seemed like a metaphor sometimes for our lives, right? You know, all this stuff happening, you know. Sometimes in that context, all we can think about is survival and, you know, spiritual practice. <laughs> you know, who knows about spiritual practice, right? So um, I, mean, I was reflecting on that. And, and so how do we, you know, given that, we have, that our lives are sometimes like that, right? Uh, how, do we, how do we keep that sense of focus and simplicity, you know? Um, just coming back to the breath when you're on the bridge and there's, it's, gas seems like it's, the red light is coming on. <laughs> Just breathe, right? So there are many tools we have for, for that kind of situation and, and um, brought back fond, fond memories uh, of when uh, I recall the only time in my life, I think, that I've broken down actually was with my father who used to have kind of running debates with my mother about whether we should um, get gas now or later. Probably this was all, <laughs> all of your families had something, something like this, you know, where, and the one story I remember, because my father was more on the frugal side. My, you know, some of you know my mother often comes to these Wednesday mornings. She's not here this morning. So, but um, they would often have these debates. And he, my father was more on the frugal side. I mean, this played itself out in thermostat wars and <laughs> so forth. But... Um, for, for, for this, not, not too bad, not, uh, but you know, he, would be on, he would want to really extend the time between visits to gas stations, and, <laughs> and my mother was more on, let's just be sure that we have enough, and, and he, said, he, he said, no, we have enough, and of course, that particular, one particular time, um, the car did break down on the um, Baltimore-Washington freeway, and so I brought back fond memories of that. Um, but, but it really, it, it really it, you can see how the mind starts getting going. So remember what my topic was? It was focus. <laughs> and, and simplicity, right? So you can see how we can get going. Oh my gosh, memories, you know, all these issues. You know. So how do we keep that sense of priorities and simplicity and focus? You know? And there are a number of ways that can really help. You know, in, in the context of retreat and practice, it's, it's, it was, I think I was reflecting on this because when one's on a retreat, the reminder that one's practicing is so strong in the other people there and in just the fact of knowing what one does. And so how do we have something like that remembrance in daily life or when we're out in the world? Not so easy. So we can work consciously with intentions you know, to really set intentions. It's wonderful to set intentions in, in one's daily practice. Beginning of one's practice, at the end of one's practice. Sometimes when I've helped Buddhist Peace Fellowship with uh, its attendance at demonstrations, like I remember with the uh, various demonstrations related to the invasion of Iraq, um, 
we would sit with people and we would really ground ourselves in clear intentions for the day. You know, very, very crucial to work very consciously with intentions. You can work with intentions. You go to a meeting to set an intention for um, when you're first there. How am I going to be? You know, to be in touch with your deeper aspirations as well as the intentions of a particular uh, action, activity. Uh, even if the intention feels like it's slippery and you set the intention and half hour later you, you have no idea where the intention went. Setting the intention still matters. So, so that's very, very crucial. You know, doing periodic practice, you know, I, I personally am a great fan of doing something like a Sabbath, which I've done most of the last 25 years. It's like one day a week, come back to a sense of priorities, even if it's three or four hours. makes a huge difference, you know, because our lives get so busy. How do, you, how do you stay in touch with your priorities? You know, it's hard. You know, modern life, contemporary life is structured so it's hard to stay in touch with your priorities. You know, so how to do, how to do that is very, very uh, crucial. Um, mindfulness, awareness, I find tremendous value in daily life to be keeping mindfulness of the body. I've often talked about that here. That if one can actually stay with your body throughout the day, do walking meditation when you're walking around, stay with your body at meetings. It's a crucial way to really have that mindfulness and awareness there. You know, I was, I think about eight or nine years ago, I was working with John Travis, who's been a mentor to me and is now, now more of a colleague and friend. But we, were, we did a lot of practice with, with uh, body awareness. And uh, I remember I was complaining. You know, we were talking about some of the Tibetan teachers who lived in monasteries. And I said, they have it so easy. <laughs> of course, that's not completely true. But I was complaining, basically, and saying they have it really easy. And um, you know, they have all these reminders. You know, I would love to be in a place where I have continual reminders to practice. And I have to remember on my own and, you know, there are different ways to do it. You can put, you know, put something on your dashboard of your car or on your computer or some people have, you know, with computers you can have, you know, a mindfulness bell ring every 20 minutes if you want to. <laughs> uh, so there are all sorts of mechanisms. He, and he, was, he said, you know, we don't have that outward monastery, but we can, we can be aware of our bodies. He said, let your body be your monastery. Let your body be your monastery. And that somehow stayed with me in a powerful way. Let your awareness of your body, or it might be for others, it might be your wish to meet every moment with care or love. You know, that simplicity, you know, that I mentioned last time. I've been inspired by Julia Butterfly Hill says, let all of my actions come out of love. Simplicity. You know, I, th I imagine that, that she's in touch with that throughout the day. How can we have that simplicity for our everyday lives, for our action in the world? I think we each will do it certain ways, but intentions, having a daily practice obviously can have a big impact, having friends, community, and so forth. And that really um, brings me to the second area, which is really crucial, which is having these support structures. And our gathering this morning, or the Path of Engagement program, or your 
medicine group of friends and your retreat. These are all great support structures. But we need a support structure, and a lot of them, to go deeply. It's very, very hard to do that out of individual willpower. We need a lot of support. When I work individually with people, a large part of what I find myself doing is helping them to organize to have more support in their lives. You know, which can mean many things. It can mean really uh, that dedicated practice, daily practice. It can mean groups. It can mean friends. It can mean really having regular retreats. I find retreats really, really crucial for, for that level of support, you know, for, that, for that way of um, inquiring more deeply and going more deeply. I think we need that kind of support to be encouraged and maybe to have the sense of safety that's needed to go deeply. If we're always in survival mode, it's hard to go deeply. We need some space, some support, some encouragement, something which, which gives us uh, heart, as it were, to go more deeply. There's this beautiful passage in one of Thomas Merton's uh, works that I love a lot about, about uh, the fact that we need that safety to open up. We need to find those safe places. And this is, this is what he, he says. The inner self is precisely that self which cannot be tricked or manipulated by anyone. The inner self is like a very shy wild animal that never appears at all when an ever an alien presence is at hand and comes out only when all is perfectly peaceful, in silence. When it is untroubled and alone, it cannot be lured by anyone or anything because it responds to no lure except that of divine freedom. The inner self is like a very shy wild animal that never appears except when there is safety and some degree of peace. And we need those support structures for that. We need to find what helps. Community can play a crucial role for, for deepening practice. The ethical precepts play a huge role. I think, especially in daily life, they can, they can also give us that kind of simplicity, that following the ethical precepts of non-harming, of not taking that which is not given, of care with speech and sexuality, and being very careful about substances which shift consciousness. These are guidelines which are very, very powerful for uh, creating support. They also can be a tremendous support for our daily life practice because we're often, especially with speech, in danger of um, going into areas where those ethical guidelines may be jeopardized. You know? And so following the ethical precepts is crucial. It's also as we expand our practice out into the world, the ethical precepts become quite challenging. How do we work with them? You know? We may think that the ethical precepts about not harming are primarily about what we do in our face-to-face interactions. I tend to interpret the ethical precepts in a, in a larger way. That if we take the ethical precepts not to harm, I think that, we, that this implies uh, action in regard to the larger society. What do you do when you have a government that kills in your name? Does that come under your ethical precepts? I think it does. I think, and I don't think that's just an opinion. I think you can find in the old text, in the old text where the Buddha is explicating non-harming, he talks about 
not just personally not killing, but not letting others kill. That language is there. And some of you know also the way Thich Nhat Hanh is interpreted. He says, do not kill, do not let others kill. Find every means to stop violence and war. So that's suddenly the ethical precepts become challenging, right? How do we work with that? You know, I think that could, for a lot of people who want to act in the world, the ethical precepts give a simplicity about how to act, you know, about how to challenge. What do you do? What does the precept mean about not taking that which is not given when we participate in an economic system in which there's often some kind of stealing, even though it's not official, right? Or when there's all sorts of questionable speech, use of sexuality, use of intoxicants in the society. How do we follow the ethical precepts? So that can, a lot of my friends who are more active, take the ethical precepts as really unifying a life in which we respond to the world and actually being very, very challenging. This is not easy. It is not easy to say, I will live a life of non-harming. You know? And I think we, we can maybe ground ourselves personally and see what that means and then bring it further out. You know, I was thinking back to the situation of um, Vietnam and I, I, I came across a poem uh, kind of from the height of Thich Nhat Hanh's involvement. He took the ethical precepts to be guiding him to stop war. Took quite a strong stance. I, thought, I think I'll read you a poem from 1964. This is called Condemnation. Listen to this. Yesterday, six Viet Cong came through my village, and because of this, the village was bombed. Every soul was killed. When I returned to the village the next day, there was nothing but clouds of dust. The pagoda without roof or altar, only the foundation of houses, the bamboo thickets burned away. Here is the presence of the undisturbed stars in the invisible presence of all people still alive on earth. Let me raise my voice to denounce this dreadful war, this murder of brothers by brothers. Whoever is listening, be my witness. I cannot accept this war. I never could, I never will. I must say this a thousand times before I am killed. I am like the bird who dies for the sake of its mate, dripping blood from its broken beak and crying out, beware, turn around and face your real enemies, ambition, violence, hatred, greed. Humans are not our enemies, even those called Viet Cong. If we kill our brothers and sisters, what will we have left? With whom then shall we live? And I think we know that that uh, voice and those sentiments are very relevant today. Right? Some of you may have seen something which was, for me, very disturbing. On Monday, there was a um, video released I read about it in the New York Times, of uh, basically a massacre that occurred in Iraq. Does anyone see this? I know of this, so some of you. It was, I, I saw it through the New York Times. It was later the main story for Democracy Now! And it was a video of a helicopter gunship in Iraq in 2007, basically shooting down unarmed people. And what was remarkable, as with something like the Rodney King incident, was not that it happened, <coughs> but that it was documented. You know, and it sh what was also rather horrifying was that I could imagine these were basically 20-year-old guys and they were laughing about the whole thing. 
they were shooting people and they were saying they were wanting people to show a gun so they could kill them. And they were joking about the um, score and so forth. And um, it's there, you know, it's there to see. And it was quite horrifying. What was horrifying particularly was the knowledge that this is actually not an extreme case, I have to think, from everything I've read and known. This, what was extreme was that it was documented and made public. And that this is the normal course of affairs for all the thousands and thousands of people. And it's, of course, it's natural that these things happen for a variety of reasons. And one of my teachers, uh, Robert Lifton, who studied uh, a lot human rights issues, and he talked about what he called atrocity-producing situations, which are basically not very hard to understand. It's basically when you can't tell a friend from an enemy. That produces atrocities, as it does in these situations in Vietnam and all wars like that. And the fact is that, uh, for me, it's very disturbing. How do I hold that awareness of that with having been also a month on retreat where people are looking into the subtleties of where attachment comes from or the subtleties of what blocks the heart you know, and, this, and reaching the deepest levels of peace that they've ever known in their lives for the most part. How do we hold that plus these news accounts in the same consciousness? Not easy, right? Can be, many of us may feel at times overwhelmed or saying, I'm not going to go watch that video, <laughs> right? Or maybe and so I think it's, I think, and this really leads me to the third area, is that we have, um, we have the guidance of these practices. We have, we have these wonderful practices which I think really make us able to be skillful working with our own minds, working in our everyday lives, and working in the world. And I, I think that maybe many of us need to step up more. I'll speak for myself like that, that there are these marvelous tools that we have. Uh, We have tools by which we can steady our minds. You know, we're in a bad traffic jam on a bridge. We have tools. You're having a difficult interaction with your partner. We can bring our mindfulness, our wisdom, our compassion to that situation. Difficult work situation, conflict with a coworker, you know, a family uh, feud, we have tools. Those are naming some of the challenging situations. The most, some of the most challenging, we have these tools of mindfulness, of steadying attention, of opening the heart, of training the heart, of developing awakened qualities like mindfulness, like loving kindness, like wisdom, like courage, like generosity. And we can learn when we're in any of these domains of our lives we can bring these practices and I think if we are working uh, in our everyday lives to the kind of situation I mentioned or wanting to respond to the world, we desperately need these tools. These tools basically save us from just being reactive and acting according to our conditioning. Or maybe I should say acting less according to our conditioning because we will act according to our conditioning. So we need these tools if we're going to respond to a situation in the world, like I described, without overwhelm or, or just uh, complete anger or sadness or grief that, that can be paralyzing, right? So these tools are incredible, you know? And it's been, for me, very inspiring to uh, 
spend time in Asia and meet people who've been in challenging situations like this, meet people who were working in Burma or Thailand or some of these countries who had, some, in many cases, had been monks and had these tools highly developed, like Thich Nhat Hanh and many of the people in Vietnam, and were able, friends who were in jails and prisons for a period of time in Thailand and who did walking meditation in the prisons, right? You know, or could really bring these tools to bear in the situation. And it's not easy, but I think we can keep developing these tools. These are really our, our ways of transformation. And then the last area is as we stay in this domain, as we really take it as a kind of a path, as we have the simplicity, as we have the support, as we bring the practices into uh, um, action, as we, as we practice more, as we do this more, I think we get a sense of what the journey is and how transformation occurs. And one of the major insights that I've had from doing both uh, a lot of retreats, I think I probably have spent over seven years of my life on retreat, something like that. And, um, and yet also being out there in the world, what I've, you know, and this is what I found especially in writing the book that I wrote a few years ago called The Engaged Spiritual Life, is that the principles of transformation are the same in any domain. Deep individual practice, being with an organization, a family, relationships, doing work in the world, the principles are the same. And they're quite simple, actually. It's that it's possible to open to what's difficult and be skillful with suffering, that we can be guided by love, that the causes of suffering have to do with the clenched fist, with being caught in cycles of uh, reaction, with greed, with hatred, and being caught in cycles and, and ways that we can't get out of those. It's, very, it's actually quite simple. I think we probably deep down we know this, right? You know, what just came to mind is one of the old Beatles songs, All You Need Is Love. It's, it's, well, it's true. <laughs> you know, it, it actually, this, this goes back, this sort of cycles back to the simplicity point. It's actually quite simple, isn't it? It's like, um, uh, it's, it's quite simple, but very hard. But the simplicity helps. You know, it's actually quite simple, and it's not so, not so difficult to see. So we can study that transformation practice as we study in any domain it helps us with the other domains. Study transformation deeply in your own heart, and you'll know better how to be with a conflict with a friend or coworker. Study it deeply in yourself, you'll know better how to help the world, because the dynamics aren't very different. They're not very different. They're all, you know, we can really see so much of what's there in our everyday lives in the world in terms of greed, hatred, and delusion and how we bring about wisdom and, and um, compassion. I think I want to end by um, talking about a, a few further aspects of the path. One, one is that um, 
as we go further with this path of transformation, it's start, at times it's paradoxical. I mentioned last time that we, that we both need a sense of urgency and we need a sense of great spaciousness, kind of at the same time. Milarepa said, hasten slowly. Hasten slowly. We have, or um, I think uh, Gary Snyder once said, practice as if your hair is on fire and you have all the time in the world <laughs> at the same time. Or Dina Metzger has a poem, which I'm, I don't have here, but I'm remembering. It says, Yeah. Thank you, Naomi. There are those who want to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is only time to work slowly. There is only time to work slowly. And I think it says there is no time not to love. Right? There's no time not to love. That paradox. That paradox, which I think really is the essence. It's also what we find when we do a retreat, when we're on the cushion, when we're doing this intensive work of transformation. Again, one of the findings I had from being the month is that there's this tremendous effort, but everyone more or less is going at his or her own pace, which often does not follow one's ideas. Have you noticed? <laughs> and I think it's also that way with our relatives and friends. Have you noticed? When you have your own ideas about, it's often, uh, often what we see coming out of retreats, people have all these ideas about how loved ones should really improve quickly. <laughs> and they have their own pace, you know? And the world has its own pace as well. But how do we combine that sense of having the long view with a sense of urgency? It's paradoxical. It doesn't work so easily for the logical mind. That's part of, I think, the perspective we have. And I wanted to end with one other expression of that, which comes from a beautiful poem, uh, also by Gary Snyder, called uh, After Bamiyan which is um, his reflection on the destruction by the Taliban of the Bamayan Buddhas in 2001, before 9-11. And um, he was responding to some people who said, aren't you Buddhists? What about impermanence? You know? you know, isn't everything impermanent? Why do you worry about the destruction of these Buddha statues? And he, his mind went back to a um, haiku, famous haiku, by, uh, the, by Isa, Japanese uh, haiku writer who lived in the latter part of the 18th century, early part of the 19th century, and was a strong Buddhist practitioner. And um, was also a parent, and two of his children died. And one of his famous haikus, let me see if I have this. Okay, I'm going to have to remember it by, by memory. Um, one, of, one of the uh, poems he wrote, after, he wrote at the, after the death of his daughter, who was young, and he was reflecting on this paradox, and he refers to a line 
from the um, Diamond Sutra, which some of you may know, which talks about the um, impermanence of the world. The, the phrase is, this world is like, like a dream, like, uh, you know, like the, uh, the dew on the grass at morning, like a mirage, and so forth. And Isa <clears throat> writes this poem, and he says, Yes, this dewdrop world is <clears throat> but a dewdrop world, and yet. And Snyder says, Yes, there is impermanence, and yes, but this quality of and yet points to compassion and points to the quality of care. And he says, yes, there is impermanence, but there is also and yet. And this and yet may be the heart of our practice. Really, and I would say in whatever domain we're in, this balance of wisdom that sees impermanence and compassion which holds it with care. And I'll just end by, by going back to the Vietnamese, what I learned. Starting in the 1940s, they said, We've had the characterization of the Buddhist path in terms of wisdom and compassion for 2,500 years. And it's sometimes said that the Dharma is a bird which has flies with the wings of wisdom and compassion. And starting in the 1940s, a large number of Vietnamese Buddhists said, given the crisis, that's not enough. We want to have three aspects to the Dharma. And, as, and I like to think of it, it's like the body of the bird. <laughs> The bird has two wings of wisdom and compassion, but needs a body. He's, and they said, that third aspect is courage. We need wisdom, we need compassion, but we also need courage. And so I would just close with that reflection, that in each of these areas, we cultivate wisdom, we cultivate compassion, and we need also to cultivate courage, which is a lot about embodying what we believe in our personal lives, our everyday lives, and our, our action to help this world in need of wisdom, compassion, and courage. Let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for your attention, and we have some time for comments or questions. Please. Where is that Merton quote from that you read? Um, it is from, I got it from a book called Thomas Burton's Dark Path 
Uh, and it was actually originally an unpublished manuscript from his own writings about the contemplative life, and I think that's now been published. So I don't, I, um, I don't know what the title would exactly be, but it, it would be something like the, the inner contemplative life. When I, I got to see it when I was spending time at the monastery there, and it was precious to see unpublished manuscripts, but I think it's been published since then. But it's a beautiful one, isn't it? Yeah. Any reflections, comments? Please. Uh, just a comment that, that that was just a very wonderful and useful talk. Mm. And uh, it's given me a lot that I needed to hear today. Mm. Mm. And it is very challenging. It is challenging, yeah. That's where community comes in. That I think it's helpful just to admit that it is challenging. You know, I was also was also reflecting on. Um, I think it's helpful just to get a sense of where e- we are each individually drawn. And one thing that's really helped me, and I know helped people when I, I've sometimes done retreats for activists, a lot of whom think they have to be doing everything all the time. And that's not true. Period. <laughs> um, that she has Joanna Macy has a beautiful model, which which I, I find really really helpful. Which basically um, it's like the Howard Thurman quote. Some of you may know, like don't do what you think the world needs. Do that which makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Do you know that one? A beautiful one. And this was from. Uh, um, a great theologian and mystic who was also African-American activist, started the first interracial church in San Francisco. Someone you would think would say, okay, okay, we have these concrete needs. Do this, do this. He, th- he didn't say that. He said, do that which makes you come alive. And Joanna Macy said, what we need in terms of really turning things around to a more, in her language, to a more sustainable life-affirming society are... We need to work on three areas, and we don't need to all work on the same, all three. The first is preventing further damage from happening. This would be stopping wars and preventing bad things from happening. That's traditional activism, to more stopping bad things. But she said also, we need to build healthy institutions. We need to look at our institutions. So this was anyone who's working with alternative health care or working out a different model of education or maybe teaching a different way to relate to our bodies through yoga or something. That's part of it. <coughs> building, building alternative institutions and then developing different ways to perceive our very experience. This, again, would be maybe teaching meditation or teaching kids how to relate to the natural world. You see, so all of those are needed. And we sometimes think that, oh, I have to do all the frontline stuff, and if I don't do it, I feel guilty and so forth. That's, I think that's... When I have said this to people who either are active or want to be active, there's often a great sigh of relief. Because I think there's a lot of guilt around I'm not doing enough. And I think it's more to say, where am I called? And just do maybe one thing. Don't do 30 things. Do one thing that helps. It really can make a difference. Uh, Marty, did you have something? Well, 
I think this is really helpful because um, the simplicity aspect, when I find myself um, sort of moving from individual practice to my everyday life to concern about the whole larger context and sort of bouncing back and forth from each of those, uh, it helps to have some conceptual framework mm -hmm. to um, because it helps with the whole simplicity yeah, aspect. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Seeing the relationship between the different pieces. Did everyone hear? Everyone hear okay? Yeah, that quality of simplicity from maybe a, like a simple framework, you know, which is part of my motivation. Because sometimes it's, we don't have a framework. It's just, oh my gosh, what am I doing? And we have a vague sense that something's not quite right with my family finances or something. Some time ago, mm. I came up with uh, uh, some words that I've been working with now for a few years. And I keep coming up with a, a different way in which to understand them and relate them. But I, they just came to me one time. And the first one was simplicity. Mm -hmm. And the second one was connection. And the third one was appreciation. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one was envisioning. But now I'm coming up with more a sense of wholeness, mm -hmm. how it all comes to understanding or having a sense of, of the whole, and it all just cycles through. Yeah, it's very close to my outline for today. Simplicity matches up well. Connection, community, the container, support, appreciation, well, not completely lined up, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it can work okay. It's a, it's a practice. And then the last one was a sense of wholeness, which is really about having a larger <coughs> sense of what the path is, kind of maybe that framework that really helps us to um, uh, feel connected. Integrate. Integrate, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, that, that's one of the major, a lot of us can often feel fragmented, right? And I think we need these communities, supports, and even frameworks which help us to feel less fragmented. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, maybe yeah, maybe the last one. Please. The um, part that resonated for me was um, when you talked about the three domains of practice. Yeah. And it was you talked about a sigh of relief. I sort of felt that when you were talking about that because I think my focus had all been on formal practice. Yeah. And feeling like if I fell down there, I wasn't doing anything else. Mm hmm. And I got a different view now, and I like that view. Yeah, <laughs> a, a wider view. And again, there are times when we focus in one place or the other. If, I, if we have these three domains, like I mentioned, I sometimes was criticized by more activist friends for, because when I first got into meditation, it just was so important to go deeper for, and for me it was for a few years. You know, that was 30 years ago. So. But there are the, these cycles that we go to, there's a cycles of more inner attention, more outer attention. I think it's quite healthy, and sometimes it's very healthy to have that even in a given year. You know, a lot of the people, because if we're going to be really of any use to anyone, we have to do this for the long haul, which means it has to be sustainable. And a lot of it's finding the cycles of going inside and outside and how that works for you. 
you know. So I think of some of my Asian friends, I think of one person whose life I really liked the structure of. He was abbot of a monastery in Thailand named Prapaisan. He did that for six months, you know, during the rainy season, and he did a three-month retreat. And then six months he was out there in the world basically doing environmental education and environmental activism in Thailand six months a year. You know, and he had this base, you know, and, and I think, you know, other people may, um, you know, I knew some people who just regularly did a month retreat a year and then were out in the world the rest of the time. And I think we need those cycles where, like, for me, the Sabbath is really important. These cycles of how do you go inside and then go outside. I think we need to share what works for us because it has to be sustainable and we have to know that individually we have to get a sense of what is my edge of growth right now and for some of us it might be all the effort we have just to really stabilize my meditation practice you know and that's fine you know or for others it might be well it's kind of stabilized and maybe I want to give more attention to my speech and my relationships and my work and others might say well that's pretty stabilized. My meditation is pretty stabilized. Maybe I want to do selective activism or select or, you know, develop something more on a community level, go out there more. So the key is to keep them all connected. That's what's really crucial. Just keep to have a sense of all of them connected. So anyway, thank you. Thank you all. This is uh, all these different groups. So we'll just uh, close with about a minute uh, just to sit quietly. And you can let anything that's been helpful from the morning, any questions, anything that's been sparked, just to be present and any intentions coming out of the morning. We close with the traditional dedication of merit, remembering that we do these practices not just for ourselves but for others. We offer the fruits of our morning together, our practice, our learning, our exploration out into the world beyond the boundaries of Spirit Rock, out for the benefit and the healing and ultimately the freedom of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.